Shame on you for doing we that. Don't, we don't. Shame on you for glorifying Send terrorism. Unacceptable affront to the rules-based global order. And we'll have enormous economic... And it is alarming. We have access to endless information, making it difficult to separate fact from fiction, especially during a crisis. But one prominent human rights organization is finding ways to cut through the noise and properly identify threats. It's really interesting to work in this space and to really have to think about where this information is coming from, how people are capturing it and sharing it. Mitch Paquette is with Amnesty International. His team uses open source intelligence to investigate human rights abuses. Put yourself in the position of someone who is filming that event. Um, they're not going to be using necessarily like third-person objective speaking that you would hear from a news organization. He says social media and a systematic workflow are essential for harnessing the vast amount of information online. We all kind of an understanding of what we bring to the team, what kinds of things we're going to be contributing to the work, and we know each other's skill set. We'll dive into what it's like coordinating a team across six different countries as crises unfold, and how you can take advantage of OSINT using tools available at your fingertips. Hello there, I'm Tristan Field-Jones. Welcome to another edition of SITREP. We're now joined by Mitch Paquette. And Mitch, uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and ex explain a little bit more about the work that you do? Hey, Tristan, thanks so much for having me. Yes, my name is Mitch Paquette. Uh, I am a researcher with Amnesty International's Crisis Evidence Lab, which is part of our crisis response program. And specifically, I focus on open source research. So using information from online sources and other uh, publicly available information to document human, rights, uh, document human rights violations across the globe and further Amnesty's mission of providing um, an accurate accounting of, of those human rights violations. Now, from what you were uh, telling me, uh, the Crisis Evidence Lab relies heavily on social media and online posts to verify human rights abuses. And of course, there's a whole uh, swath of other team members and organizations, if you will, or groups within Amnesty that help out with that. I think a lot of people might be listening to this and thinking to themselves, why does Amnesty International need a huge uh, or sizable, at least, you know, online and social media team. And I think that's be worth, that would be worth explaining, Mitch. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think when a lot of people think about Amnesty International and our research uh, historically, it has always been the idea that you have in your mind is often of a person who goes into the field and to a, a different country where there's some sort of event taking place and they speak to witnesses or victims gathering testimony and, and other physical evidence, which we use to build a case. Um, that's still a huge part of the work that we do and still a very fundamental pillar of Amnesty's work. However, what we're finding is that in, in the modern era, um, and thanks to digital technologies, which, you know, flood every aspect of our life these days, we have access to other sources of information that that we haven't utilized uh, or leveraged for this purpose in the past. And we can really use those effectively in, uh, in partnership with these other methodologies for research and fact-finding um, to create ultimately a better, more accurate uh, documentation of human rights violations. 
And so one of the ways that we're able to do that is through social media content. Um, pro probably one of, uh, and that's what I focus on with my work as an open source researcher. So our, our team is still fairly small. Um, we're around seven or eight people and we're a multidisciplinary team. So while I focus on open source information and research, uh, gathering content from social media and other online platforms, we also have someone on our team who specializes in weapons analysis and weapons identification. Uh, we have a satellite imagery and remote sensing expert. We have other people who specialize in, in data analysis and, and working with large data sets. And so together we kind of pair all these different skills to, to utilize different forms of information um, towards the, the goal that Amnesty International has always had. Well, and talk a little bit more about one of the groups known as uh, the Digital Verification Corps, because that sounds like a, a really interesting uh, initiative. And it certainly speaks to the work that you and your team are doing uh, when it comes to uh, identifying human rights abuses. Absolutely. So the Digital Verification Corps is a program that sits within the crisis response program and within the evidence lab. And it was it started around five years ago by a former colleague of mine named Sam Dubberly, um, who really had this idea along alongside others within the organization that, you know, we're making more and more use of these new research methodologies. However, there's still a huge gap within the human rights field of people who are able to do this research effectively. Um, people who were previously trained in different kinds of, of fact finding um, and evidence gathering and didn't necessarily have the skill set to do this work at the level or the scale that we need to within an organization like Amnesty International. So the Digital Verification Corps was set up to really address that challenge um, in, a, in a big way. So it was designed to create partnerships with universities across the globe. So currently we have six uh, partner universities and every year around a hundred different students come through the Digital Verification Corps. We provide training in open source research methodologies. Uh, we work with them to, to learn skills like how to discover content on social media platforms, running effective online searches, and then verification techniques. So how to conduct a reverse image search how to use satellite imagery and other mapping tools to verify the location, a process called geolocation um, of photos or videos that document potential human rights violations. So we set this program up and we've been training, you know, around hundred students every year. Those students have been uh, found their way into other organizations. So we have people that are working for the New York Times. We have people that are working for the UN, other NGOs, uh, as well as human rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Uh, I myself am an alumni of the Digital Verification Corps. Uh, I was a volunteer with that program before I, I joined Amnesty as a, as a staff member um, on the Crisis Evidence Lab. So, and then we also, the other side, so we provide training and then the way that we allow students to then put this into practice and explore these skills and these methodologies is working directly with Amnesty on our different investigations. So if we're looking at a sort of large scale event, um, like a mass protest that goes on for months and months, um, such as, you know, protests that we've seen in Myanmar or in Chile in 2019, um, you know, or in Colombia last year, there's all sorts of examples where we've been able to use this large uh, group of students to help us gather and verify content at scale so that we can better document these, these mass events. 
and I think the elephant in the room uh, recently anyway is, of course, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We will certainly dig into that uh, a little bit. But I think before we look at individual case studies, if you will, Mitch, take us uh, into a bit of a deeper dive in terms of how exactly you and your team identify human rights abuses, especially in the era of misinformation and disinformation. It's a really good question and a really important one. Um, As you note, I mean, the challenge, there's obviously so many benefits to using material that is posted online to document human rights abuses. It allows us to gain access to areas that we might not be able to to visit in person or to to send someone into. Um, We can find events all across different cities and cover massive amounts of territory um, without having to physically be in all those places at once, which would be impossible. Um, So there's all these benefits, but obviously the big drawback is that you can't trust everything that you see online. We've all had those moments where we've, you know, seen a video or seen an image and it turned out to be from a completely different country or a completely different year and was circulating out of context or was intentional disinformation um, by a particular actor to to try to create um, false understandings or um, to sort of disrupt the information space. You know, the way that we kind of navigate that while trying to find uh, solid evidence of human rights violations is first to just look and see what's out there. So we use different methods for conducting precise searches. So we use different advanced search functions, um, different search operators to sort of filter down how much information we're working with and really look at something that's going to be more specific to the the research questions that we're ultimately trying to answer. And then we evaluate the content for its ability to address those research questions. So, you know, if we're talking about a mass protest, maybe one thing that we're trying to document is the the use of less lethal ammunition in a, a manner that would be unlawful or the use of live ammunition to dis, uh, disrupt protests. Um, so we're looking for very specific violations and then we're trying to find content that effectively addresses those questions. Um, once we've done that and we found content that might uh, provide evidence of possible human rights violations, then we need to verify that the content is actually from the place that it's supposedly from um, and from the place that we're trying to document violations in, as well as from the time period uh, that events are supposedly taking place in. So we use techniques like geolocation, which I mentioned earlier, um, where we you know, use different tools and imagery sources to match up with distinct features in a video. Maybe it's a bridge in a background or a particular shop sign if we're in an urban environment to be able to say for sure that, yes, this video was captured at this exact location. Um, And then we use different techniques for chronolocation. So we'll run a reverse image search, make sure that piece of content hasn't appeared online in a prior incident or in a previous previous year um, or month, whatever it might be. and then looking at other things like the shadows in the video to confirm the time of day, make sure that checks out with other sources of information that we have, whether it's reporting from the ground or, or other things. So it's never just one piece of content in isolation, um, but those are the processes that we go through to verify it. Um, and then ultimately, at the end of the day, we're still an organization that is that prides ourselves on really quality reporting from the ground. So we'll try to pair that information with witness testimony and other sources to be able to corroborate what we're, what we're 
what we're finding in the visual content. It's interesting to think of social media and an online post as open source intelligence. You know, I realize that it consists of a lot more, but when you keep, you know, OSINT in mind, and especially the word intelligence, you're thinking, you know, maybe undercover reports or leaked documents, right? That's that's kind of the the stereotypical image you get. But I can think of a couple times, and I've never, you know, witnessed any horrific events, thankfully, but I can think of a couple times where I filmed a protest or there was a traffic disruption or who knows what. And, you know, granted where I'm broadcasting from Canada, usually that doesn't result in a whole lot. But it's funny to think how someone's random tweet or random Facebook post eventually ends up as part of OSINT and eventually ends up as part of these open source investigations, because I don't think a lot of people really uh, think of it in that manner. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a it's a field that's developing rapidly across a, a lot of different sectors, whether it's journalism, whether it's, um, you know, uh, security or whether it's human rights investigator, investigators. Um, I think people are finding different ways to utilize this information or they're finding that they can utilize it. I think everybody is at kind of different places in in how they are looking at social media. Um, I mean, I think what we've often found is that people aren't necessarily going out to document uh, to document a human rights violation. Maybe they're just filming an event outside of their house that they're watching happening and they think, oh, I'll pull up my camera phone and I'll, I'll take a video. Um, and those things often get picked up very quickly by other sources. They get amplified across social media. Um, and that's, or we find them, um, through very precise searching and using different keywords. Um, I think one of the interesting aspects of our work and of this, of the investigative process is that one of the skills that we, that we utilize, or one of the tips that we teach our students is to think about when you're searching for content, to put yourself in the position of someone who is filming that event. Um, they're not going to be using necessarily like third person objective speaking that you would hear from a news organization or something. They're going to be saying like, uh, you know, they might be using profanity in their tweet. They might be saying like, you'll never believe what I saw outside my house. And, you know, those aren't necessarily things that you think about including when you're trying to search for content. But in our line of work, that's really how you find these videos that are um, sort of kind of that crucial piece of evidence that we often need, which is the, the witness footage from the ground and directly from the scene that helps us corroborate what happened in, in an event. Um, so it's really interesting to work in the space and to really have to think about, uh, you know, where this information is coming from, how people are capturing it and sharing it um, and how you can effectively find it and then make use of it um, through verification and through other forms of analysis. How would that, would some of these techniques and some of the methods you're describing, how could that potentially apply to the world of security? Now, obviously, I realize you, that you investigate human rights abuses, but I'm hearing a lot there where if you're a security professional at an important organization, at a major corporation, or even at a small business, it sounds to me like there would be a lot to take away from the methodology and the uh, techniques that you and your team are using when it comes to uh, protests and civil unrests and human rights abuses. Because at the end of the day, 
those events inevitably and ultimately result in a security risk of some sort to someone. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's at the end of the day, the tools are pretty much the same that you would use, uh, whether you're monitoring for the purposes that we often are, or you're monitoring as a, as a security professional, uh, the content that you have to work with is going to be the same. We're all basically pulling from the same data source, um, which, you know, in, in many cases is social media or other forms of online content. Um, and really it's just a matter of how you're using that information, what value you find from it and how you want to make use of it. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, oftentimes when we're monitoring, um, you know, I was, if we're monitoring a situation, a protest, um, we might be looking for, to, to figure out where the protest is located. We might use features like the Google maps, um, feature that tells you where there's traffic disruptions, right? We might use that to figure out, oh, there's probably a protest or a clash happening here, um, between a group of people. And that's how we interpret that is, oh, we should look in this area to find out what's happening here, to find footage of um, whether there's potentially human rights violations taking place. But equally, that, that traffic disruption is going to mean a lot to someone who's working in, in the security field. So I think it's, it's ultimately the same forms of information and the same tools for gathering it and for, for monitoring um, these various sources. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really just a matter of what your purpose is. Um, for us, it's what research questions we're trying to answer. For others, it might be, you know, uh, what's going to be the impact on this particular company or this particular business um, given these events. So it's really just a matter of interpretation and what you're trying to draw from that information. I, this is, a, I think, a perfect case study uh, to demonstrate sort of what you and your team do. So. How are you guys monitoring the developments in Ukraine as that area deals with just horrific circumstances? Yeah, absolutely, Tristan. Um, so, I mean, I think the whole world is really watching these events unfold at the moment. Um, whether, you know, you're doing it in, you know, in, in my day, this is kind of the main focus of, of our work right now is trying to really get a get a sense of what's happening minute to minute um, within Ukraine as as the Russian forces forces advance at various points. Um, and it's a it's a complicated information space without question. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, they, they talk about the fog of war. This is definitely not dispelled by the fact that we now have all of this content online. It's still a very chaotic situation. It's still very hard to get a picture of what types of things are happening on the ground. Um, but we can get a pretty good sense. So we're really looking for incidents of civilian casualties, uh, damage to civilian buildings. Um, so whether it's a residential apartment building, whether it's a hospital, whether it's you know, a school, um, unfortunately we've seen, seen cases of all of these uh, reportedly being damaged in, in the conflict um, through, through various, uh, through various means. So what we're doing is, is really just using various social media platforms. So at the moment, you know, we're working on, we're, we're working across Telegram. Uh, we're finding lots of content on TikTok. Um, even before the conflict started, when there was a buildup of uh, Russian troops on the border of Ukraine, there was constant videos on TikTok of people filming troop movements, whether it's vehicles driving through their city um, on their way to the border, or whether it's, you know, 
uh, soldiers setting up a camp somewhere. All of that was being documented and by some organizations even meticulously mapped um, as it was taking place, which is, I think, something that we've never seen people in uh, a public um, setting be able to do before this, something that maybe a military intelligence could piece together. But in this case, we were seeing people doing this, uh, doing this type of work on their own, just from their own computers and using open source information. So I think, um, we've really seen a lot of different, uh, opportunities for, for getting a sense of a conflict, um, through this recent, uh, and horrific events, um, in, in Ukraine. Um, so yeah, I guess from our monitoring, um, I, I talked about the types of events that we're looking for and I spend most of my day using, um, Telegram and Twitter, uh, especially a tool called TweetDeck, which allows you to monitor different streams of, of content on Twitter to try to figure out in what cities there's fighting, um, where there's reported, uh, events of, of, of the type that we're interested in. And then once we find that content to really dig deep and find those types of videos that you were mentioning earlier of someone who, you know, is maybe just sitting in their home and, uh, all of a sudden there's a, a, a plane flying overhead, or there's an airstrike that falls outside of their, their kitchen window. Um, so finding those types of, of footage to be able to document these things, um, has been a really important way that we've been able to respond to the conflict, um, within Amnesty in, even in the early days, we've already issued a number of reactive tweets documenting uh indiscriminate attacks um on uh largely on civilian um on civilian targets within ukraine so these are violations of of international humanitarian law and you know i've also been using other tools because we're trying to monitor such a massive information space so i've been relying a lot on on tools like samdesk that allow me to sort of monitor different cities and be alerted to different incidents um i mean whether it's internet disruptions in the area, which have a big implication for my work about how much content I can expect to be coming out, why there might be a drop in how much documentation I'm seeing online, um, to, you know, reports of, uh, very recent attacks on hospitals or schools, whatever it might be that I'm then able to, to do further research on. And how do you manage a team? that it's spread out over the world. I, I think, uh, Mitch, you know, and, and not just talking about the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but I know that your team's done work on many instances of human rights abuses from all corners of the planet. How do you manage a team that it could be spread out over several continents and different time zones trying to look at all this information? This is something that we deal with in all of our work because we are a remote team. We have colleagues uh, based in, in multiple cities across the globe. And then when we work with our uh, digital verification course student volunteers, they are also based at six different locations across the globe. So as you can tell, it gets, it gets challenging logistically. Um, however, when you're doing monitoring of a active and rapidly progressing conflict, that can also be a massive benefit. Um, so being able to do kind of round the clock monitoring, given people's different time zones is really valuable. It allows us to keep tabs on things. Even, you know, after I log off at the end of the night, um, someone else can pick up that work and continue 
uh, with the documentation so that we're not having large gaps in our understanding of a conflict, which if it's changing minute to minute, um, you know, six hours of sleep can be a big, uh, can be a big change. Um, it'll be a completely different conflict in the morning. Um, so the way that we manage that type of interaction is largely just through uh, really having very systematic workflows. So we all kind of an understanding of what we bring to the team, what kinds of things we're going to be contributing to the work. Um, and we know each other's skill sets. So it might be that I'm working all day to find different content uh, related to a particular airstrike or a particular event. Um, I kind of finish my work. Maybe I've geolocated, geolocated a couple of videos that show where an airstrike took place. I can then pass that information over to a colleague in the US who's able to look for satellite imagery before and after that event to corroborate the footage that I've seen um, and analyzed with satellite imagery that shows maybe um, a building that's intact yesterday and today there's significant damage to it. So we can kind of put together our different expertise and different ways of information gathering um, despite the distance and despite the difference in times uh, to, to really work in a collaborative way. Um, but it, it, it just comes down to kind of knowing the roles uh, of each member of the team and being able to effectively pair those skill sets um, as much as we can. What's the biggest challenge in your mind of managing a team that's so spread out, uh, especially when events develop so rapidly? I think ultimately the biggest challenge is, is just coordination. It's just being able to, to communicate um, and, and to communicate effectively. I, this is this is also the key. This the key to making the work successful, and it's a it's much easier said than done, right? Because when you're monitoring a conflict like you know the the conflict that we're seeing in Ukraine right now, um, you can imagine that I don't necessarily have time to take a break constantly to let other people know what I'm working on or what I'm doing, um, because everything is happening so quickly, and we're just trying to gather as much information as we can. Um, I've kind of skirted around this, but uh, there's also a challenge working with social media content that things might be removed. Content isn't permanent once it's uploaded to social media. So there is a level of pace that we're working at that is not necessarily conducive to collaboration when you're not in the same space as someone else. So there are a lot of challenges given the pace and uh, of the work and just the fact that situations are constantly changing during a conflict or a crisis. Um, so you know, it doesn't always work perfectly, but uh, the way that we try to address that is just through having done this time and time again. Um, you already rattled off, I think, three different global or like crises at a at a global scale um, over the past three months since or past two months since the year began. Um, a lot of us have been doing this work for many years and working together on on projects like this. So. We, we kind of get a sense for how this plays out and uh, what, we, what we all bring to the table. And I think that's how we get through it, we, just through experience and um, being able to reflect on what went well the last time and what we can improve on the next time. Have you noticed any glaring vulnerabilities brought to the forefront because of the pandemic? And, and what I mean by that, Mitch, is, uh, you know, any lapses in 
government authority or any lapses in potentially security to keep people safe, especially since you monitor human rights abuses. And, and again, the pandemic, I, I know, as one example, we've spoken about not so much a security issue, but uh, we, well, in terms of corporate security anyway, but in terms of individual security, one of the things that a lot of people have brought to the forefront is uh, abuse, right? That that has been something that has been a huge concern for a lot of people because more of us are staying at home. So I'm wondering if we use that as an example and then kind of extrapolate that, if you will, to the work you do. Have you seen any major vulnerabilities where it's like, this wasn't as much of an issue before the pandemic, and now it is for our investigations, uh, be it your methodology, your techniques, whatever it may be, when, as you're tracking these human rights abuses and civil unrest protests, et cetera? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the vulnerabilities that has been brought out by the, by the pandemic um, specifically as it relates to, uh, you know, open source information uh, generally, but specifically on social media platforms, is the threat of disinformation and, and misinformation and the kind of inability currently to, to manage those spaces effectively. Um, I mean, whether it's pandemic related or whether it's directly related to different issues on the ground in different countries, like we're seeing information and misinformation proliferate rapidly across social media, picking up large amounts of traction, creating insular sort of communities around certain beliefs uh, that are often um, or that can be informed by false uh, by false information that is that is circulating widely online. And so I think one of the things that the pandemic has brought out is just how much of a problem that can be for everyone involved when you're trying to manage a global crisis like this and you have people following these sources of information in mass numbers that are not sharing any uh, that are not sharing information that is backed by science or by health research or by any sort of sound um sound information so i think that is one challenge that we've really seen a lot um online uh, during the pandemic. I think other things that we've, that we've witnessed um, is just ability, uh, especially when there are all of these kind of strict measures, when the world is maybe paying attention to other things. We have seen the pandemic give rise to a lot of, you know, events that should spark a lot of concern globally. And I think that because people's attention is is directed elsewhere, because you know people are just trying to get through a a global health crisis, I think we're seeing different governments taking advantage of that opportunity to commit abuses against their people or to uh, engage in more violent crackdowns of even small protests or or demonstrations in their in their area. Um, you know, we've seen many many internet uh, disruptions and in blackouts in certain countries during the pandemic as well. So I think the pandemic has created the space where people are not able to get onto the ground as easily to document these types of events. Um, people are not, you know, maybe looking for this type of content as much because uh, of just the nature of living during a global pandemic. Um, and it's led to a lot of abuses globally in, in, in many different countries. 
anecdotally, Mitch, based off of the work you do, would you say that civil unrest and protests, would you say that those are increasing in number and perhaps intensity? Again, I just think of the first couple months of 2022 and all the unrest and conflict we've already seen. But you've been at this for several years. So would you say that that's an increasing concern? I think I think that's a it's a really interesting question. And I've definitely found myself thinking about that quite a lot um, in recent times, especially. Um, I think. I think I've seen it have two different effects. In one sense, it has, I think, had an increase or had a, it has led to an increase in civil unrest or demonstrations or public protest, um, whatever you want to, to refer to it as. Um, I think part of that is because the pandemic has brought to the forefront in a lot of different places, uh, sort of historical inequalities. Um, different issues faced by particularly marginalized populations as we've all been really affected by this global health crisis and the impacts that it's had on um, different governments, on different economies, um, people's ability to work uh, and and engage in that way. Um, and so I think in some places we have seen it have a an effect uh, where we there has been an increase in in public demonstrations uh, as a result of this i think in another sense we've also seen it have the opposite effect um where you've had potential protests that maybe haven't happened because countries have been facing severe lockdowns because people have been uh, afraid for their own health or their family's health to go out and engage in in public protests or um, things like this. So I think it is hard to say because it's hard to measure how many protests may may have happened or may not have happened um, because of the the reality that we're living through right now. Um, but you know, I definitely think that there has been, especially as of late, a uh, a pattern of of you know, civil unrest taking place more frequently across uh, across different countries. And, and we've seen that over the past, um, you know, six months, two months uh, of this pandemic. So what would be your advice to, let's say, the security professional out there? Or, or maybe you can point them in a direction where they hear about all these tools, they hear about social media, and they think to themselves, I want to incorporate some of this into my new security strategies or into my new methods of making sure employees and, and colleagues are safe. So if you had to give a, a short list or, or some recommendations in terms of where they can tap into these resources easily and in a way that's um, uh, comprehensive, where can they start? I mean, I think the best place and the way that, and the place where most people, I think, have started, um, to my, at least in my experience, is Twitter. Um, I mean, there's specific Twitter groups that you can, that you can follow. Um, one of the groups that's quite active and has a lot of different people who are affiliated with it is, is Bellingcat. Um, you know, we uh, have uh, our own blog where we share different tools and tips. It's called Citizen Evidence Lab. Um, it's, a, it's a blog. Uh, website, maybe we can share it, um, the the link to that. But a lot of people are willing and open to share information that they have. Um, another Twitter community is Osin Curio, 
Um, so if you can find these groups, start following different people, the work that they put out. Um, a lot of them participate in this uh, Twitter community as well around um, quiz time. So hashtag quiz time and people will put up different geolocation challenges and anybody on Twitter can engage with this with these images and videos and, and try to geolocate these, um, these, these uh, pieces of content to really get experience in, in this line of work and then to connect with other people who are also using, using these tools. So I think the online space is full of different sources of information, different people who are always willing to, to have a conversation, um, to chat. Uh, and I would just encourage people to kind of find an entry point into it, whether it's a specific person on Twitter, whether it's a specific group or a blog or, you know, some other kind of online resource, and then just keep going with that, you know, find the people who are a part of it or leading that effort, um, get in touch. And in my experience, everybody in this field has been really willing to help each other out, um, and, and share what they've learned, um, in this, you know, kind of new and, uh, quickly developing space. Okay. Uh, Mitch, this has been a fabulous conversation. Really appreciate your insight. And I think there's a lot of information to digest there and, and a lot of ways that uh, uh, security professionals and, and those in related fields too can hopefully uh, bolster the resources they have and enhance maybe the work that they do through some of the methods that you use for your own work. Very useful information, Mitch. Uh, I absolutely want to give you a plug, though, because you said that um, the uh, uh, Crisis Evidence Lab and the Digital Verification Corps at Amnesty International has uh, some resources there that could be helpful for gaining access to this information or figuring things out. Uh, so, uh, Mitch, feel free to, to plug that. Where can people find more information about you and the work you do and uh, the work that Amnesty International does? Yes. So uh, I mentioned this earlier, we have a blog where all members of our team, as well as external collaborators, share, um, you know, different case studies. We share tools that we develop. We share training resources. And that is called citizenevidence.org. Um, so the blog is called Citizen Evidence Lab, and it's at citizenevidence.org. Um, you can also follow all of Amnesty's work on our website or at Amnesty um, on Twitter. Uh, we have a course online with an organization called Advocacy Assembly. We have a two-part course that we developed on open source investigations, specifically for human rights, but the tools and techniques that we share there will be useful to anyone. Um, so there's a two-part course on there. It's mostly videos and different exercises. So if people are getting started, that might be a really good place to go to. Um, so you can find that on Advocacy Assembly and just navigate to the Amnesty tab um, of that website. All right, Mitch Paquette with Amnesty International joining us on SITREP. I'm Tristan Field-Jones. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me, sitrep at samdesk.io, or follow us on Twitter at samdeskofficial. Until next time, stay safe out there.